Welcome back to another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling, and this is the podcast for folks who want to build amazing startups, but they want to maintain their freedom, their purpose, and their relationships as they do that. You can describe these startups as bootstrapped or mostly bootstrapped or non-venture track or indie SaaS. It's a bunch of different ways, but we know that the gestalt of the movement is that people want to be in control of their destiny and not beholden to anyone else. I really appreciate if you've left a review or a rating in Apple Podcasts. I'm on my drive for 1,000 ratings, and as of a couple days ago, 998. The most recent review was from Val Sopi, and he said, Startups for the Rest of Us is everything you need in a podcast show about bootstrapping a SaaS business, from pricing strategies to marketing, all the way to real stories from the trenches. It has it all. Thanks for that, Val. And you don't even have to write a review if you click that five-star button in Apple Podcasts. We're going to hit 1,000 in no time, and I really do appreciate everyone's support. It helps us grow the podcast, and it helps keep me motivated to keep shipping episodes. Today, I talk with Jonathan Weinberg. He's a single founder of an app called Builder Prime, which is CRM software for home improvement contractors. Jonathan is approaching a million ARR as a niche SaaS founder. He's serving home improvement contractors. And obviously, there are only so many of those in the country and only so many of those who don't want to use paper and pencil or don't want to use Excel and actually do want to purchase a SaaS app to handle a lot of their client communication. We touch on how he came up with the idea, how he got early traction. We, of course, have our recurring startups for the rest of us segment, When Did You Know You Had Product Market Fit, and others. I hope you enjoyed this story. Let's dive in. Jonathan, thanks for joining me on Startups for the Rest of Us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Rob. Pumped to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you, man. And you're a listener of the show, right? I am. I was a late starter to discover the podcast, but since I did discover it, it's basically every single week. Oh, awesome. That's cool. So we're here to talk about Builder Prime, sir. This is pretty incredible SaaS company that you've built. And I think a lot of folks listening to this would love to build a company that, that has been mostly bootstrapped to this point and have the success that you've had. Your H1 is the only does-it-all contractor CRM software suite. Builder Prime has every tool you need to scale your home improvement business. And that's how I usually describe it when I, I mention it here and there, right? Because it's such a good example of a niche piece. And I'm always like, it's CRM software for home improvement contractors. Is that how you describe it too? Yeah, that's, that's kind of the, uh, the brief version of how I, I would describe it, yeah. And talk about where you are in terms of progress. Absolutely. So we're about to hit a pretty big milestone in the next month or two. We should be hitting a million in ARR. So pretty excited about that. We've got five people on the team, including myself right now, looking to grow that out a little bit further. Hopefully going to be hiring another couple of people here in the next few months. Just going from there. That's cool, man. A million ARR with only five people. So you, you're running it pretty profitably, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking for places to spend money now, but yeah, and and the last two um, employees to the team was actually pretty recent. Uh, started kind of this, you know, just a couple of months ago. So uh, we were three for a while. Now we're five. Hopefully, getting to seven in the next couple of months. But but yeah. Do you find it hard to decide on what the next role is to hire? Because this is something I hear from a lot of founders. It's like the first hire. I can give a lot of guidance. It's like usually support's pretty easy to outsource or you know there's just a you have to build features to keep up with the market so you're going to hire a developer or well we need to do marketing so you know it, it's kind of I would say the first one might maybe easier to figure out but as you go once you're at 5 it's like well what is 6? Aren't there competing priorities for that? How do you think about that as a founder? 
Yeah, so I mean, it's actually not that difficult. It's it's one of two things. One is, okay, well, what job do I want to fire myself from next? That certainly provides input into it. And the other thing that, for example, I, I find myself keep trying to get to, I, I keep trying and trying and trying to focus on marketing, and I can never focus on marketing. So I need to hire somebody for that. So it it's pretty straightforward. You know, I've kind of gone back and forth as to whether my next one should be that marketing person or another developer, but yeah, I'm going to kind of do both of them at the same-ish time. So, but, so it's been, hasn't been too difficult to figure out what's next. And I want to take people back to the early days of Builder Prime so they can hear how you came up with the idea, whether you validated it, whether you built it. And the fun, I'm chuckling because you are the reason that in the state of independent SaaS survey, when we ask, how did you come up with your idea? And you're the reason that there is an option on there that says poor customer experience. Is that the origin of this? It's it's not actually. No, um, it was actually a great customer experience, which is the odd thing. So I have no experience in the home improvement business prior to this. We bought our first house in 2011 and we went to get our bathroom remodeled. And we actually had a, we, you know, we went through the whole process of selecting a contractor and getting the job done. And it was actually just a, an amazing experience. Loved the transformation, started thinking about, oh, this would be cool to have a business, like my own home improvement business where I can, I can do work like this. And, you know, but I was never really going to get away from, you know, the tech side of things. So, you know, the, the idea just started to sit in the back of my head as far as, well, if I were doing a business like this, what type of tech would I want? What type of systems would I want to be able to manage this effectively? And there were inefficiencies in terms of how our contractor operated. I'm like, yeah, I, I would, I would fix, if I were doing this, I would fix those things for sure. And I could do this much better if I pictured myself in his shoes with these types of tools. So that's really where it came from. But it was, it was a, a great experience really that, that, that drove it. Yeah, but I did not validate the idea. Um, not not the most advisable thing, but it, it it seems to have worked out. So it really just from there, after you know, I kind of got the idea in my head, sat there for a while, and finally started to to tinker and, and all of that. And and I called up a couple of contractors that I knew, including the one that did our bathroom, and just kind of asked, "Hey, is this something that you think is needed? Is this something you would use?" And, you know, of course it was, oh yeah, that sounds, that sounds really cool. But, but nobody committed to anything. Nobody said, oh yeah, I want to, I want to pay you now. And, and, you know, once it's ready, let me know. Nothing like that. So it was really just building stuff and building and building and building and hoping that it was going to, it was going to work. So kind of playing with fire a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Which is dangerous, right? You could have built for a long time and not, not got traction. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I was getting a lot of early feedback, you know, as I was building, there were a few different people in the, in the industry that I was getting feedback from. So it wasn't like I was completely building in a vacuum. So there, there was a lot of that, but yeah, I, I, it was 2016 that I quit my job and it was really not until t- mid 2017 that I got my first paid customer. You know, so I was just building the whole time and it was, I wasn't even sure if it was ready yet. I was getting feedback the whole way as I was developing, but my first paid customer is not the one who was providing that feedback actually. So a couple of things that are interesting. One, for some reason I had it encoded in my mind that you had a, a home improvement contractor who did work and you 
thought the work was good, but you didn't like the experience and therefore you set out to build it. And it sounds like that's a half truth. You know, it's human memory, right? It's like you, you told me this story once three years ago, probably on tiny seat interview or at a 20 minute thing where I'm doing six calls back to back. And I, I think I encoded that in my head. So part of like the sales experience was not the greatest. Like, for example, the part of getting the contract, at, it, was a, it was a Word doc. I had to print it out, you know, sign it, scan it, send it back. And, and that. so there were parts of the sales process and parts of the communication that were not the greatest. And that's kind of where I, I set out to, to try and solve some of those issues. So that could be where some of that's coming from. Right. And so you didn't do much validation. You had a few phone conversations. You quit your job without a product. So did you have money in the bank? Did you have, you have a trust fund? <laughs> I did pretty well in my career for the first 12 years. I was in corporate America, worked my way up the, the ladder into middle management. Middle management was not for me. For me, it's, you know, I either got to be all the way at the top or all the way at the bottom. I, I think I can be happy in either of those spots, but I don't like being in the middle. But yeah, that, that just wasn't the right thing. But I did, I, I saved up money. I'm a conservative spender. So I, I saved up, I saved up a good bit of money and I, I, I knew I wanted to do this and I was saving up for that purpose. I wanted to have some runway to be able to basically not make any money for a little while. And were you married at the time? I was married. I had, no, I had both of my kids. So I had, a, they were five and two. How did you get your wife on board with that decision to quit the day job with no income? Yeah, she she was always very supportive. You know, part of it, we, we were living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the time, and she wanted to move back to New York City, where we had lived prior. And I'm originally from New York. I really liked living in Pittsburgh. So part of her idea was, hey, let's move back to New York. We'll be closer to your parents. We'll get more help with the kids. And, you know, you can quit your job and, and, and do what you want to do. You know, so that was part of it. So we moved back and I, to much more expensive place to live. And I still quit my job. So was that scary for you? Cause that would, that would feel very stressful to me to quit the job. Or did you just say, worst case, I go back and get a job. Yeah. The, oh man. The, the first six months, I would say at least of making no money was a shocker for me. It was so stressful. I've never been in that position before. Yeah. That, that part was, it was an adjustment. It was definitely an adjustment and a roller coaster. I can imagine. And so, so you quit the job. You have two young kids. You're building a startup, which I've been in pretty much the identical <laughs> situation. Not where I quit the job, though. I had other income coming in from products. So you built for a year before you got your first customer, it sounds like. 12 to 18 months. How did you... Yeah, about six months. Yeah. Oh, only six months? Okay. Yeah, it was, I mean, there were nights and weekends, you know, before, sure, you know, sure. before all that. You were but, but yeah. in process, yeah. And like, how did you get er your early traction? How did you get your first, you know, whatever, five or 10, 15 customers? So it was just iterating, listening to feedback. You know, there, there was one really kind of interesting and helpful thing that, that happened. My, I believe he was my third customer. I met him at a local home improvement contractor association meeting here that I, I joined up. And he became my third customer, was really into it, you know, lots of great feedback. And he was kind of helping me to understand some of the things from the industry and, and, and what kinds of things were important. And a lot of it was really great. And I, I tried to use my filter as far as, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, this, I'm not so sure this, this fits with the vision. But he was giving me a lot of really good feedback. And there was the, the end of 2018, start of 2019. Um, he's already a customer for a while, but he called me up 
It's like, you know, I had to fire my office manager. He's a, a window and door company. He's like, I had, I had to fire my office uh, manager and I really need some help. I need somebody in the office. Why don't you come and work for me and I'll, I'll pay you to be my my office manager. I'm like, no, I, I, I can't do that. I'm, I'm, I'm working on the business. I got to keep growing this thing. I got to keep working on it. I got to focus on it. And he kind of kept coming back. Ah, why don't you come? Why don't you come work for me? Why don't you come work for me? And I, you know, I thought about it a little bit more. Honestly, my my runway was running out, and I still, I, at that point, I don't think I had started paying myself yet. So it was like two years in, and I still hadn't paid myself. And the runway was starting to get less than I was comfortable with. I'm like, you know what? He said, I, I can do demos. I can work on it half the time. I just got to be in the office, do about half, you know, basically work four hours half the time uh, each day. He's like, all right, you know what? Let's let's try it. Turns out it was one of the greatest things that could have happened. I got to use my own product as a user every day. I got real-time amazing feedback as far as you know what's needed and what this industry really needs. And that was kind of the, the time that I did a bit of a pivot, right? So prior to that, to be honest with you, I didn't know I was building a CRM. If you would have told me you know, when I was first starting it that, hey, you're going to pivot this into a CRM. I was like, I'm not going to build a tool that, you know, for sales, right? I'm not, I'm not the sales guy, but based on where the need was and the feedback from, from him and from, from other customers, it's just kind of where things naturally went. That's where the gap was. That's where the need was. And that's where we started getting a lot of really good feedback about those types of things that we were building. So it was during that time of being a user of my own product and working directly in the industry at the same time and learning a lot about a lot more about the industry that I didn't know that actually helped to shape what it is now. What was it before? It was more of a project management tool for during the project. Yeah. So think about, I mean, it, it, it did the contract process, you know, like I was saying earlier about how the, the the process around signing the contract wasn't great. So we built like the e-signatures and all that type of, and, and the ability to, you know, create the estimate, get it signed and do all of that early on. And then it was you know, about scheduling the job and and scheduling your employees and your, your subcontractors and you know, having a, a Gantt chart with dependencies between this task and that task. And all of that stuff is actually still there. It's still in the product. And, and that's one of the things that that's made us a little bit unique compared to our competitors is because other CRMs, in this space, there are other CRMs for home improvement companies, and they don't have either that kind of production project management at all, or they some of them don't even have the estimating. And the ones that do, it's much it's much lighter. So, like you were reading the H one earlier, that does it all CRM software suite, right? It does more than the CRM because that's kind of how we started. We started with the estimate and the production management side, and then the CRM pivot came later, but that's really been the focus of the product development for the last you know, three years. And in terms of finding early customers, a lot of folks find that's very difficult because it's the cold start problem, right? Where you basically have no brand name, no one knows who you are, no one knows how to find you, no one knows they should be looking for you. So was it cold outreach in the early days? Did you make it to the top of Hacker News and the subreddit, slash r slash construction subreddit? So one of the things, right? So with that pivot and repositioning as a CRM, 
that's what people search for. And that's why we always say, you know, we always say, hey, what do you do? Or, oh, we're a CRM for home improvement companies because people are searching. The people know the term CRM. They know they're supposed to have one. They know they're supposed to, you know, it's a, it's a big part of what their businesses are, especially the, the ones that are growing and scaling and, and, and have a significant number of, you know, significant volume of leads that they need to track and manage. So people search for that. We built out a couple of, uh, well, I'll say maybe like five or so different copies of the landing page with different H1s on it, right? It was best CRM for painting contractors, and it was a different header image. It was best CRM for window and door companies with a different header image. But it was basically just a copy of the landing page. But it seems to have worked reasonably well for people that were, were looking for us in those like real specific niches. Right. So it's it was an SEO play then. Yeah, but yeah, pretty much. And then there's the, you know, some word of mouth as well. Yeah, I would imagine that, right? And construction is a small industry. Like my brother runs an electrical contractor and there are not there are not a kajillion of these contractors. Even, you know, if, if you talk like in California alone or in the country, like they talk a lot. The owners talk to each other. And so I can imagine if you get a reputation that that brand, once you get past the cold start and you are now known as a, as a solid product, I would imagine people would be passing that around. All right, Jonathan, we're going to do the Startups for the Rest of Us segment. When did you know you had product market fit? So like most people will say, right, it's it's a sliding scale of product market fit, right? I think in the early days or the earlier days, I'll say, started to sort of realize that we're, we're getting there based on just customer feedback. Even though we didn't have a lot of customers just yet, the ones that we did have, and we're talking to them all the time, right? We have, it's very hard for us to get any kind of any kind of customer without talking to them at least for one or two meetings, if not a good bit more. So we get a lot of feedback. And, you know, we would have people come and say, I've been searching for something like this for so long, I can't believe I finally found it. And they would say different things where it's like they they were fans, right? They were they were like actual fans. And it's not often that somebody says, I love my CRM, but we were getting people saying, you know, I love this CRM. So that was the kind of the, it's like, all right, we're, we're on the right direction. We're finding a need, you know, there's a need here, you know, we're filling it at least for, for some of them. We, we got to do it for more, but at least for some of them, we're, we're filling it. So that was kind of the first part of it. You know, a little bit later on, this is, this is a, a little over a year ago, we had a really bad outage. I did a database upgrade over the weekend. Monday morning came, and Monday, you know, the, during the week is when we have the uh, you know, much, much higher traffic than on the weekend. And Monday morning came at about 10 a.m., everything started to crap out, right? There was just people couldn't use it. The database was just obviously not able to keep up with the load. We just upgraded the database. Why is it now having all of these problems? And we're, we're out for probably at least a good four hours. This is the stuff that, that nightmares are, are made of. But the thing is, we're getting calls from customers you know, saying, you know, what's going on? I can't access it, you know, keep us posted. But like, I don't, they're saying, I don't know what to do without the system. Like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to, how to do anything. Right. So it was clear that, okay, we're, you know, people are using the software, it's helping them with it not being there. It's a big problem. Right. So that was kind of another little clue, I guess, as to, yeah, it sounds like we've got, we got some product market fit. People are really using it. They're getting a lot of value out of it being down for any period of time is, is the big problem. So that was another another part of it. And then, you know, as we continued on from there, net negative churn, right? So that's a pretty good indicator that, you know, people are not churning out. You know, that's that's a, another another really good indicator. 
And even just yesterday, we got a phone call from a manufacturer for concrete coatings. And we have a lot of customers that are dealers for this particular product. They do concrete coating um, jobs. And we happen to work really, really well with them. And they called us yesterday and they said, you know, we're having a you know, national dealer meeting in December. We are going to kick out your, you know, your competitor that's been sponsoring, you know, for the last however many years. And we'd really like you to be there because we keep getting such great feedback from all of our dealers about, about the product. You know, so that, that's kind of like, that's just the, the, the next level. It's like, all right, we're, I mean, people are, they're not just telling us, you know, they like the product, they're telling everybody they like the product. So, and obviously the, the revenue and, and the, the, the metrics tend to speak for themselves as well. So yeah, it's been, it's been a sliding scale. And I think it's something that, you know, you're always trying to, to get better in terms of the, the product market fit. And we're continuing to do that. There's still a lot of things that we're continuing to, to do to evolve the product and keep up with a changing market, right? I mean, markets aren't static. Right. So markets change. So you also have to keep the product up with a changing market. So it's really it's never ending trying to, to keep up with it. I'm glad you called that out because I, you know, I always say on this show, product market fit is a continuum. It's not a one or a zero. It's more like a one to a hundred. And, and at different times with different audiences, you have more or less product market fit, stronger and weaker, as, as we like to say. In addition, you just said markets are not static and they change. And I have absolutely seen products get pretty strong product market fit. And then the, the needs of the market change. An open source tool comes out, for example, that suddenly a lot of people start using and is almost the equivalent of what you've built. And suddenly it's like, now I have strong product market fit again, not have people canceling, have people really, really want what I've built. I have to pivot. I have to add more features. I have to give more value. You know, there's something there. So there aren't that many software companies that last 10, 20 years. There are some, right? We can call them out. But even those that last, they don't do it with one product. Microsoft, Oracle, Intuit, you know, whoever we could throw out who's been even, I guess MailChimp's one, but man, they're, there's some exceptions around there. And their product is now several products just under one subscription. It's not just email marketing anymore. It's landing pages, it's Facebook ads. I think you can like build directly MailChimp. So they've added a bunch of stuff. These are good problems to have because you don't run into these until you have the kind of traction that you do, until you start getting bigger and you do have product market fit and then you get the competitors coming in. The other thing I want to call out is this idea that folks are such advocates for you and they're they're such fans of your product that they're kind of telling everyone they know, it sounds like. And that is what Jason Lemkin calls a mini brand. And he says, when you hit about, it's once you get north of 1 million ARR, and I distinctly remember this happening with Drip. It was a little before that because of the circles we ran in where everybody talks online. And so it was about, it was somewhere between half a million and 750, if I recall. But you're seeing that now where you're not Pepsi, you're not Disney, you're not Marvel, but a mini brand is that you have a brand within your circle that a lot of people have heard about you. And if, in fact, these days, I bet if a group of contractors are sitting around the campfire, I bet they'll be surprised if a person there hasn't heard, at least heard of Builder Prime. Yeah, you, you know, I think the market is also a lot bigger than people might expect. We're still such a, a, a small player in this space. And there's so many people that are using other CRMs and estimating tools and all that kind of stuff. There's so many people that are not using anything or don't even know that this is something that they need or maybe it's something they don't need yet. So I think there, there's still a lot more opportunity to, to break in in terms of name recognition and, and people really, even if they're not customers, you know, at least hearing of us, a lot more have these days. Uh, there's actually, 
it's funny, there was a story, this is about a year ago or so, where one of our vendors got a an Uber and I, somehow they got to talking about what they do and the vendor that got the Uber, the person driving was actually also worked at a home improvement company that was a customer of ours. And they got to say, oh yeah, I, I use Builder Prime every day. And the vendor's like, oh yeah, we work closely with them, which was which was kind of crazy to hear. But there's still there's still so much room to grow in terms of this industry and, and that name recognition, but we're definitely starting to, to make a dent. And at some point here, I'm, I'm looking at your MRR graph and there was a point, it was maybe late last year, early this year, where you hit what I call the bootstrapper hockey stick, right? Because venture, venture says the hockey stick and you see Facebook and Google and all that. And that's like, that's just next level stuff. But for bootstrappers, your revenue really, your growth really started accelerating at a certain point. And you and I had had a conversation last year where you said, I want, you know, right now I'm growing at whatever you were growing at. And you're like, I want to double or triple that by the end of the year. How do I do it? Came up with a bunch of strategies and you obviously executed pretty well. So my question on this is, how did that happen? Like every bootstrapper wants to achieve the bootstrapper hockey stick. Like what, what do you think you did that worked? So the flat part of that hockey stick is actually where we screwed up. So we made two big changes at the same time, kind of right around Memorial Day last year. And we changed our pricing, which essentially resulted in a, an increase in price. And we also started moving away from emphasizing, book a call with us, book a call with us, let us help you, let us help you, right? So we tried to push people more to self-service and they weren't looking for self-service. They wanted that hand-holding, those calls, those Zoom sessions. So we did both of those things at the same time, weren't quite sure what the problem was, but we had, basically we flattened out for a few months. And then it's like, well, I don't think, you know, people aren't complaining about the price, right? That's that doesn't seem to be where we're we're having the resistance. Let's reverse course. Let's go completely the opposite on the on the phone calls and the onboardings and the you know, all those Zoom meetings. And let's let's get meetings on the calendar. That's that's our new focus. Let's get meetings on the calendar. So we did that and things turned around. And not only that, they turned around with higher pricing, right? So we had that little blip but the higher pricing definitely was a driver. Besides that, it was also uh, just continuing to iterate, add some key features. Like for example, we added automated text messaging and you know SMS-based marketing and, and all of that kind of stuff. And that was a that was actually a big driver for people to upgrade their subscriptions. It was a it's a completely different revenue stream because we charge separately for for text messaging in addition to being on a higher tier subscription. So you know some different things like that, but definitely the price increase, continued seeking of that product market fit and some key new features and revenue streams, I think all altogether is what really helped to accelerate that that growth from that point. Yeah, often when we see an acceleration in growth, pricing has something to do with it. Pricing and or sa- the sales model, it's both both things you are trying to change. And obviously your recommendation at this point would be don't change both of them at once. That would be mine as well, right? <laughs> you, you do <laughs> yep. one, you let it settle because you know all your metrics, you know your numbers. And when you change two things, you're like, uh-oh, I don't really know. I don't know what you know which of these impacted it. And so, but what's funny is you quickly reversed course, right? You were A, willing to make pretty drastic changes like raising prices and changing your sales model, which is scary and risky, but you were willing to take that risk and maybe make a mistake. B, you did them relatively quickly and you undid the mistake relatively quickly. 
and you push forward. And that's what I see great founders doing, right? Is the A, a willingness to make mistake, B, the willingness to do things quickly, and C, the willingness to, to make some scary, potentially scary strategic high-level changes because those are often the ones that move the needle a lot. You can make a bunch of little tactical things like, well, let's do a little more SEO or let's do a little more cold outbound. Or you can say, well, let's double our pricing. Let's go demo only or no, you know, no demos anymore. Like these are drastic changes and they can be scary. Yeah. And and definitely don't do both at the same time. One big thing at a time. <laughs> but yeah, at least we we figured out, you know, kind of what the it was it was a we let it go for a couple of months. It was the summer and everyone was saying, oh, it's the summer is slow. And so it was like, oh, it's probably just just slow summer. And, you know, we just happened to make these changes before, you know, right before that that kicked in. But that wasn't the case. It wasn't because of the slow summer. It was, you know, we screwed that up and we didn't know which one it was, but we took an educated guess, reversed as quickly as possible, and everything started coming back, you know, stronger than before. So. So before we wrap up, I want to ask you maybe one or two more questions. And with permission, I want to talk about this, this topic that you raised to, I think it was Anar and I via email a few weeks back. And you were saying, I'm working a lot and there's a chance I might want to like, what's, what's next? Should I sell the business? Like, should I think about selling the business? And you had a big decision. Where are you today? Like, where did you wind up? And what was that decision process like for you? Because I know that there are a lot of folks who build a great business and who get to this point, whether it's half a million, 2 million, 5 million ARR, where there's a, you have a lot of options on the table to get liquidity. And you also have not enough diversification, right, is what it amounts to, because you have million, literally millions of dollars in net worth tied up in, in a software company. So talk us through what you were thinking and where you wound up today. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So kind of we're reaching that, that stage where there are more options on the table, right? And I work a lot. I work too much. And I am seeking more balance. And I think the the idea of of selling is a is a bit of an overreaction to that. I would go from working too hard to not working at all. And I, I love doing this. I, I I love what I do. I've been doing it for six years now and I'm not tired of it. I don't want to work quite as much as I'm working now. I'd like to to get that down to like you know normal levels, be more present for other areas of of my life and my family and everything like that. But I don't want to go to, to now. And I, I don't know what I would do next. I like doing this. And so I started thinking more about, well, maybe, you know, maybe take some chips off the table and see if, uh, you know, get some investment, take on additional equity partners or something like that. But it's honestly, it's, I could do that, but it's going to take time and effort away from what I want to do. And that's continue to build and continue to just, I can hire more people. I can grow the team. I can do all that stuff. I don't need the money for that. It would just be you know, really for, for me personally. And you had mentioned something on the podcast just recently about how every additional, let's say thousand dollars in MRR that you add, you know, well, that's times 12 for ARR and times whatever multiple you want to go with, let's say like a five X multiple, you know, that's every month you're adding 60,000 for every thousand dollars of MRR, that's $60,000 in equity that you're adding to the value of the company. And you start thinking about that even in in higher amounts that you're adding each month, and it's like, wow, that's that's pretty powerful. So you know, I'm I'm going to keep trying to fire myself from as many things as I can, and and grow the team, and just work towards working less. But there's no need to do anything different. I, I love what I do, and I really want to keep building this, see how big we can make it, and keep helping more more people, right? Keep getting more of those fans, and and that's really what I always sought out to do is to build something that people use on a, on a 
large scale and get get a lot of value out of. So if I can continue doing that and and just not stressing myself out quite as much as I am now, that's that's really where where I want to be at. Yeah, and given given all that for you where you're at, selling would be a permanent solution to a temporary problem because you're going to be able to figure out you know how to get around the overwork and the stress. I I believe in you to do that. And I do think a lot of founders come to that point where they feel the stress and an exit just becomes, it's one possible solution, but there are many others. It's to be less stressed, you know, it's to figure out how to do that, whether you're through hiring, whether through, I mean, there's all tons of options. I've done therapy. I've done, you know, there's, there's a lot that you can do. You can take a sabbatical. I know a founder who took a sabbatical just a couple months ago from, he'd been working on a company like 10 years now and he's like kind of burning out. And he took three months off because they're bigger, right? They could, he could actually do that. So there's a lot of ways to think about that. And I think it's, if you're listening to this and you're at a point where you're thinking about selling, A, now's not the best time to sell because the economy, but, but B, just make sure that it's, there are permanent reasons why you want to sell. It's not just temporary roadblock stuff. So yeah, very well said. Thank you so much for joining me, sir. If folks want to see what you're up to, builderprime.com. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. Thanks so much to Jonathan for joining me on the show. It's always great to have longtime listeners on the show. It's great for a couple of reasons, because they know the format of the show, they know how we tell stories here, but also makes me feel incredible to have folks who may have not had a business at all and decided to start a side hustle and then they go full time and then eventually they're approaching a million ARR and they've built an amazing company that has changed their life and provided them with the freedom and the purpose and allowed them to maintain incredible relationships while they remain in control of their company and of their destiny. Very meaningful to me to have folks like Jonathan on the show who have followed my journey, have followed this podcast, have followed MicroConf, Tiny Seed, you know, whatever it is, that's the mission of all of those things, to multiply the number of independent SaaS founders in the world. So thanks for joining me again this week and every week. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 630. 